The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. In the delusional beliefs we have about our friends, about our lovers, about our children, these delusional beliefs are actually vitally important in making us happy in those relationships. Take away those delusions and we're often going to be less satisfied. We're going to be less happy. People who believe their partners are more beautiful, more intelligent, more compassionate, kinder people than they really are, are likely to be people who are in happier relationships than people who can see their partners for exactly who they are. Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm your host, Michael Kavnat, and this is The Next Big Idea Daily. Today, we're joined by journalist Shankar Vedantam. You might know him from his popular podcast, Hidden Brain, in which he regularly takes listeners on a fascinating tour of neuroscience, psychology, and the very human stories of our very human brains. One theme Shankar has returned to again and again is our ability to deceive ourselves. Cognitive biases, mental shortcuts, conspiracy thinking, there are thousands of ways we humans behave irrationally. And that's a bad thing, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Shankar has a different take. In his book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain, Shankar and his co-author Bill Messler argue that the lies we tell ourselves might just be crucial to our happiness and success. Here's Shankar to share some of the book's big ideas. Self-deception can sometimes be good for you. Now, this is a very surprising and counterintuitive argument, and I came to it somewhat surprisingly. It was through a story that I was reporting for the public radio show This American Life about a very unusual scam that unfolded in the United States over a period of several decades in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. It revolved around a balding, middle-aged man in a small Midwestern town. His name was Donald Lowry. He was also a writer. And over the course of many years, he invented various characters, young women, and he called these young women angels. And then sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, he hit on this unusual idea of writing love letters in the voices of these angels to thousands of men across the United States. He formed an organization for these men. He called the organization the Church of Love. And in its heyday, the Church of Love had as many as 30,000 members across the United States. And as part of your membership in the Church of Love, you were expected now and then to send in donations or what uh, Don Lowry called love offerings to these angels, to your correspondents. Um, and over the course of many years, Donna Lowry extracted many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars from people across the country. Now, here's the part of the story that really blew my mind. When Lowry was finally arrested and put on trial for mail fraud in the late 80s, several members of his Church of Love showed up at his trial to speak in his defense. I found this shocking. Once the con is revealed, why would the marks show up to defend the con man? I initially thought that the people who fell for Lowry's scam were just deluded fools, uh, simpletons. But as I got to know some of them and interviewed them at some length, I came to understand that for many of them, the letters that they received as part of the Church of Love were an important lifeline. Members at Donald Lowry's trial talked about how 
The letters, the love letters they received from the angels kept them from depression and anxiety. A couple of people even said the love letters had saved them from suicide. And in some ways, it was the start of my exploration of the possibility that self-deception, while in fact can do a great deal of harm, can also sometimes do various kinds of good. Now, you might say, you know, this is an unusual story. It's a story of a con, and, you know, what happened to the members of the Church of Love has nothing to do with me. But it turns out the same forces that affected the members of the Church of Love also affect the rest of us. And let me give you the simplest example of where it affects all of us. In our intimate relationships, in the people whom we love, our spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, our children, it turns out that all these relationships are also often marked by great heaps of delusional thinking. Imagine for a second that you and I could go on a car trip across the United States, and we stop by every wedding that was unfolding in the country in the course of this year. And we ask the people getting married, what are the odds that you're going to get divorced? We ask them on their wedding day, what are the odds you're going to get divorced? Now, I think you'll agree with me that very few people will tell you their odds of getting divorced are 50%. But of course, if they're thinking logically or rationally, that is exactly what they should say, because approximately one in two marriages end in divorce. However, if people on their wedding day say there's a one in two chance of getting divorced, those are not people who are likely to have a happy marriage. And it leads me to the point that I'm trying to make, which is that in our intimate relationships, it turns out the beliefs we have, including the delusional beliefs we have about our friends, about our lovers, about our children, these delusional beliefs are actually vitally important in making us happy in those relationships. Take away those delusions and we're often going to be less satisfied, we're going to be less happy. People who believe their partners are more beautiful, more intelligent, more compassionate, kinder people than they really are, are likely to be people who are in happier relationships than people who can see their partners for exactly who they are. This, of course, is true in spades when it comes to our children. Many of us delusionally believe that our children are extraordinarily special and unique creatures. And this happens to all of us, especially after the birth of, a, of, the, of your child. You sort of think that this is the most special child in the entire universe. This is a delusion, but it's a very useful delusion because this delusion buffers you against the body blows of parenting. To see your child and your children exactly as they are would make it much harder to be a good parent. And this is why, in the course of evolution, nature has seen fit to endow us with vast amounts of self-deception when it comes to people we love. Now, you can say, all right, this might be true in our intimate lives, in our personal lives. Some amount of self-deception can be useful. But is it true at an even bigger stage? The forces that we're describing at the interpersonal level also hold true at the level of groups and at the level of large institutions. In my book, I explore the idea of the placebo effect, uh, which has long bedeviled many clinical trials because when you're testing a drug and you want to know if the drug does better than placebo, very often what you find is large numbers of patients in these trials respond to placebos, respond to sugar pills. And when a drug cannot outdo a placebo, we typically say the drug is ineffective. It would be more accurate, however, to say that the effectiveness of the drug is limited to the placebo effect because it turns out that effect is far from zero. Many studies find that many patients do get better on sugar pills, and some remarkable studies have found that this is even true when it comes to surgery. 
when doctors perform sham surgeries on patients, they make incisions in patient's skin but do not actually carry through and finish out the entire surgery, many of the patients report being helped by these surgeries, and sometimes they report being helped as much as patients who received the actual surgery. The self-deceptions that affect us in our individual lives, as I said, also affect us at the level of groups and nations. Um, It's difficult for many of us to think of nations as being delusions, but in some ways they are. Uh, Nations, after all, are human inventions. Uh, They are creations of human beings and they're creations of the human mind, and they require large numbers of people to believe in the delusion in order to become real. But you can see how nations can perform all sorts of powerful things. The fact that somebody in Texas feels that they are of the same country as somebody living in Illinois means that when there's a natural disaster in Illinois, someone from Texas feels like they're part of the same group. So it might be delusional to believe that these human inventions have some objective reality, but it turns out that these delusions can, in fact, be very useful for us. One of the things that I argue in my book is that we often make the mistake, especially people like me who are deeply logical and rational, who believe deeply in science, we often make the mistake of assuming that all arguments are best waged at the level of logic and reason. Um, But this is, of course, not true. When you think about important issues like climate change, for example, you know, we often think that presenting the next peer-reviewed study is going to convince the people who don't believe in climate change. But of course, at some level, that's delusional thinking because if the first 677 peer-reviewed studies have not convinced someone of the reality of climate change, why would the 678th study make any difference? And I think what we should actually aim to do is try to find ways to recruit the self-deceiving brain in the service of important causes. I'm a sports fan, and I sometimes marvel at the fact that you know, come January when football teams are playing in the in the bitter cold in, in open air stadiums, you see fans standing, you know, bare chested, you know, you know, on the sidelines with the, their team's colors written on their chest. And you have to wonder what is with these people? How do they care so much about these teams, these fictions that they're willing to stand bare chested in, you know, 12 degree weather in Green Bay during the NFL playoffs? And I often ask myself, where is the same passion when it comes to fighting climate change? Where are the people who are willing to, you know, deal with the freezing cold and go to great lengths to defend the integrity and safety of the planet? You would imagine that if there was anything that's worth demonstrating that kind of loyalty, it wouldn't be to your local football team. It would be for the one planet that we all call home. I think we often make the mistake of, of believing that the best way to win arguments is through logic and reason, when in some ways we might want to take a leaf out of the book of sports teams that are, have come up with all kinds of ways to engender passionate loyalty, passionate intensity from their followers, and try and deploy that logic, deploy that intensity in the service of causes like fighting climate change. As I've indicated to you a couple of ways, I'm a deeply logical and rational person, but I've seen in my own life when I'm put on the spot and very difficult things happen to me, I will sometimes reach for delusional beliefs myself. Some months ago, I was um, traveling several hours away from my home in Washington, D.C., and I experienced a retina detachment. Um, And for those of you who are not familiar with this, the retina is the screen behind your eyes that allows you to see. And when the retina detaches from its hinges, you essentially can go blind. And I could literally see my vision disappearing before one of my eyes. Again, as I said, I was very far from home. I couldn't find a doctor. I finally managed to find an eye surgeon in a city that I'd never been to, And he very kindly opened his practice for me at 9 o'clock one Tuesday night. 
And he told me that I'd had a retina detachment, that I needed to be rushed into surgery in the next minutes or I was going to lose my eye. And of course, I did what all of us do in a situation like that. I put all my faith and trust in this person. Now, as it turned out, he was a brilliant doctor and he saved my eye, for which I'm profoundly grateful. But after the surgery was over, I asked myself this question, was my faith in him determined by the fact that he was a good doctor? The truth was, at that point, I didn't know he was a good doctor. I didn't have a chance to get a second opinion. I put my faith in him because I was in a position of great vulnerability, a place of great anxiety. And in some ways, I think that speaks to one of the central ideas of the book, which is that when we advocate that people follow logic and rationality um, and never sort of engage in self-deception, at some point, we're often speaking from a position of privilege. We are not actually in the foxhole with people. And were we to actually be in the foxhole with them, we might discover, as many people have discovered, that in fact, there are no atheists in the foxhole. It's absolutely the case that there are some delusions that are deeply dangerous that we should try and overcome. And my book has some really important insights about how to overcome dangerous delusions. Again, I think we often make the mistake of assuming that we fight conspiracy theories by presenting facts and logic and argument, when in fact, we should be asking a psychological question. We should ask the question, what is the psychological purpose this delusion is serving? What function is it serving? What kind of costs would this person experience were they to give up the delusion? When you're talking over a Thanksgiving dinner with an uncle who believes the U.S. was behind the 9-11 attacks, for example, rather than argue with the person, it might be better to start with compassion and empathy, to ask questions, to ask people what the belief means to them, what would happen if they were to give up the belief. I'm not suggesting for a moment that this would be a panacea for all conspiracy theories, but I think even a cursory glance over the last year shows us that fighting conspiracy theories by throwing logic and reason and facts at them not only is ineffective, but is regularly counterproductive. In many ways, my book is a call to compassion and curiosity, not just for other people, but even for ourselves, to look at our own minds with compassion and curiosity, because it is the case that while we might think of ourselves as logical creatures, we're also the product of a long story of evolution. And it turns out that when you look carefully at evolution, Evolution fundamentally cares about what works, not about what's true. And if it turns out that self-deceptions are functional for us, evolution has been more than happy to place those self-deceptions in our minds. Thank you, Shankar. Those were big ideas from Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. For more great ideas from nonfiction, consider joining the Next Big Idea Club. Our curators pick out the best books of the year and we send them right to your door, along with reading guides and other goodies. If you're not a big reader, I bet you know someone who is. Check out our gift options at nextbigideaclub.com and use code DAILY for a special discount. Come on back tomorrow when we'll talk about one of our species' most stubborn and pernicious delusions, racism. We'll hear from writer and policy expert Heather McGee, who will share the big ideas from her New York Times bestseller, The Sum of Us, what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together. I'm Michael Kovnett. See you tomorrow. <laughs>